Father, we take a moment right now just to quiet our hearts and to ask that you would speak to us. We thank you for the power of the gospel. We thank you for the past tenseness of the gospel. Such were some of you. Paul wrote the church at Corinth. We have the capacity to turn back from that which we were saved. But thank you that your spirit is able to call us back to you in faithfulness. And God, that's the word that I was thinking about even as we were singing this morning. Faithfulness. You are a faithful God. We're so often so unfaithful. We're not faithful to um, even our most basic relationships sometimes. Um, Lord, we're not faithful sometimes to the family of God, the bride of Christ. And yet you're constantly faithful with us. We are Gomer and you are Hosea and you're constantly buying us back. And we thank you for that. Would you warm our hearts with that truth? And Lord, there's going to be some cutting, but would the salt of the Spirit uh, come with that cutting and ultimately the healing power of the gospel? Um, would grace be coated on everything I say? Because everything I'm saying is what Paul said and everything Paul said is what you had him say. So we want to hear from you this morning. Give us ears to hear and a heart to be softened. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we're in a crazy, coming out of a crazy season. I just mentioned COVID. Uh, I, would, I think we'd all agree that in this last season of life, individually and collectively, there has been no shortage of crazy stories. I think one of the craziest stories, though, comes out of the athletic realm. When just this August 29th, um, ESPN aired its annual high school kickoff football classic between two supposedly premier high school programs. One of the programs, indeed, premier, IMG Academy down in Florida. Sports fans maybe have heard about them. The other school turned out to be anything but a premier program. That was Bishop Sycamore. Anybody remember that story? All right, well, let me clue you in. About a quarter and a half into the game, they could see that it was complete debacle. I mean, somebody characterized it like a pro team playing a Pop Warner team. And even by before halftime, the, the announcers sheepishly uh, conceded that they had not been able to verify even one, not one of the supposed D1 uh, invites on the Bishop Sycamore roster. And after the game, it was, it was just a terrible game, an investigation was done. And what they found out about Bishop Sycamore is, is they had no classes, no teachers, no faculty, no building, no practice field, that it was, any, it was not a school, just on paper, that was it. And all they could reduce it to was a handful of kind of hucksters led by then head coach Roy Johnson who was wanted uh, on multiple counts of fraudulence, um, of not paying bills, and of misrepresentation for, uh, for unlawful financial gain. And to add humor to that, I mean, that's kind of a sad story, um, when they interviewed this guy, he, he was later fired by who knows who, and replaced by another huckster, 
But they asked him about it. He said, oh, no, we're a school, and we have biblical principles. For instance, when we speak about talking with one voice, we go to the Tower of Babel. And I would say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, Coach Johnson or former Coach Johnson, that is not the place you want to go to, talking about unity. It was an ungodly unity. Um, then they replaced the guy, and the guy who took over said, we've been misrepresented. We're, we never said we were a school. Hmm. You played in the high school kickoff classic. And you actually filed papers in the state of Ohio to be a school. And the story goes on and on. For instance, i got to add this. They actually had a bunch of JUCO or junior college transfers play on this team. You're talking 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds. And they still got their backside handed to them to add insult to injury. Crazy story. But here's the point. They proved to be a fake, a fraud, a scam. They were not what they represented themselves to be at all. They were a laughing stock. You might say ESPN got catfished. Paul is writing the church at Corinth because he doesn't want them to be a fake, a fraud, a scam, a laughing stock. They were succumbing, this church at Corinth, to what I have called the Corinthian effect. Namely, letting the twisted values of Corinthian culture make its way into the ethos of the body of Christ. So we saw chapters 1 through 4, Paul addresses the division. Chapters 1 through 3, there was division that was starting in the pew. Chapter 4, it looks like somebody is trying to get on the platform, lead from the front, causing division. Then we saw last week, they not only tolerated a guy sleeping with his stepmother, they actually were boasting in their tolerance of this guy sleeping with his dad's wife. Paul doesn't want them to be a, a fraud, a fake, a scam, all of that. He doesn't want them to be a laughing stock. And so in this strong chapter, it's strong, chapter 6, he's basically saying, I care about the way you live as a Christian. And the title I take for this message, I lift directly from three words in the last phrase of this chapter, so glorify God. That's the big idea this morning. God doesn't want us to be Christian fakes, Christian frauds, Christian hoaxes, a laughing stock to an onlooking world. Now, it is, this is a tough chapter, I will tell you, to preach in one message. I'm going to try. We'll see how it goes. Because he seems to go from lawsuits than to sexuality and other things. But I think I have the big idea. The big idea is, so glorify God. Don't be a fake, a fraud, a scam. And basically, they're going to see two big sections. In the outline, you'll see heading number one. The first section, verses 1 through 11, Paul, I think, is really saying this. Don't live like the world. And he's going to give us three compelling reasons, first of all, not to live like the world. The first reason, you can see it right here, is this. Because you will look like the world. Don't live like the world because you will look like the world. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 6, um, Paul really almost explodes with emotion. He says this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous, that is, before the world, instead of the saints? 
Paul is fired up, is he not, about the bad testimony of Christian going to court against another Christian before an unbelieving world. Now, I do need to dispense with the abuse of the text. This is not a unilateral condemnation of courts and lawyers and judges, notwithstanding all our lawyer jokes. Some of them are pretty funny. But these things can be gifts of God, actually, to fight against injustice and fight against evil and make things right. Paul himself appeals not once but twice to law courts in the book of Acts. Remember the centurions beating him? And that was against the law to do against a Roman citizen of which he was one. So he says, I'm appealing to the court. And at the end of the book, he appeals to the highest court of the land, Caesar. And I would quickly add, there are times even within the body of Christ when such horrific things happen, abuse, etc., that the right thing to do is to run right to the legal authorities. And I would add to that, one day, every lost person is going to stand before the ultimate judge, the Lord God himself. So it's not a condemnation against, just a flat condemnation against the use of lawyers and judges and courts, all that. But what the problem was, they were taking things to court, these Christians, that they could have worked out themselves. Notice the word, as Pastor Charles read it, trivial in verse 2. Are you incompetent to try what he qualifies and characterizes as trivial cases? Now, we don't know what it was, probably because we would just minimize it to that. But these were trivial cases. And what we need to know is a little background about the Roman court system. Every city had a local court, just, just like we do today. And go, watching the court was a little bit like um, and it actually was an ancient form of entertainment. Remember I talked about how they had people who traveled and did speeches and people come and watch them? That was one form of entertainment. Another form of entertainment was watching one of these court cases unravel. They were located in the agora or marketplace. There would be a bema seat, and on that bema seat would, would, would be kind of like a small claims court judge kind of thing. So you could go and do a little shopping, and you could hear some good arguing, maybe a really juicy fight. How much better when it was between Christians? These people are supposed to love their enemies, and apparently they can't even love themselves. That is what Paul is getting after. And this is what he says about that in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints are going to judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent, he says, to try what kind of cases? Trivial cases. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? A series of rhetorical questions. Now, we don't have time to unpack it, but we are actually, if you're a Christian, you're going to be part of the judgment at the end of the age. That's pretty, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? Jesus talked about that. The book of Revelation talks about that. I don't have time to unpack that, but his point is that, that, that kind of makes small court claims chump change, right, compared to the judgment at the end of the age. He proceeds with this in verses 4 through 6. If this is the case, then he, here's what we ought to do. Or not do. Look at verse 4. So if you have such cases, these trivial things, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Again, the world. 
I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is not one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. What's he saying? Look at those two words. It's a shame that you're doing this. It's a defeat that you're doing this. That is a terrible testimony. Don't live like the world because you, well, look like the world. You're doing just like the world does. And then he gives a solution in verse 7b and following. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be what? Defraud it. What is he, he says, instead of trying to inflict, why don't you absorb a little bit? Don't defraud, don't wrong. Absorb if you have to. Does that remind you of anything and anyone that might be at the center of our faith? Jesus Christ, instead of inflicting, did he not absorb? And he did so all out of grace and all out of love. So don't live like the world because you'll look like the world. And guess what? You have the Holy Spirit to walk out the way of Christ. So he ends this mini section with these words. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And they're doing it before the world. And it's a poor testimony. Now it gives us a second reason why we ought not to um, live like the world. Not only will we look like the world, but these are strong words here. We'll be lost like the world. Look at verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a pretty plain statement, right? And he goes on to say, do not be deceived. And we need this because sometimes people deceive themselves. Well, I prayed the prayer. Well, I was baptized, etc., etc., etc. We're easily deceived. And then he gives nine behaviors which will keep people out of heaven. They're not all all-inclusive list. And by saying they will keep you out of heaven, it's not saying that heaven is earned. Heaven is not earned. It's showing that you never had a new heart for heaven. And he uses a very strong literary dynamic called an inclusio. Think of bookends, where you say one thing, then you add to it, and then you come back and you say it again. Because he begins with, will not inherit the kingdom of God, and he ends in verse 10, I believe it is, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we really need this warning in this age of easy believism, where everybody's a Christian. Can a Christian commit any sin? Yes or no? Of course. Look at David, right? Like, eh, adultery, homicide to cover his adulterous tracks and all the rest. So yes, any Christian can commit any sin, but these verses and other partner verses teach us that those who continually pursue and practice such things were never really truly born again. Because it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things are becoming new. 
And such a person shows that old things haven't passed away and there ain't nothing becoming new in your life. Kind of that's the point. And I think maybe he lists these nine sins out of all the sins he could have chosen because these nine sins seem to be particularly prevalent in the cultural ethos of Corinth. Look at some of these words. You got the word thieves. There's a lot of form of, lots of forms of uh, thievery, right? There's the white-collar type, and there's other kinds. Greedy, pretty self-explanatory. Drunkards, pretty self-explanatory. Revilers, that means one who is abusive and angry with other people all the time. Swindlers, which would be someone who cheats, a grifter, a liar. And all that would be summarized in this second expression, idolater. We're making other things our God. Now, I left out four words. Four of these nine words actually have to do with sexual sin. But I want to stop real quick because I feel like sometimes conservatives will lock on to the sexual sins and overlook the other ones, like greed, right? Like swindling and and all the rest. And I just want to make the point that we would ignore all of these descriptions and more to our own peril. Because this is clear that someone who's locked in an unrepentant pattern of any of these nine or other sins does not have a true saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that said, he does spend nearly 50% of those categories talking about sexual sin. Probably because among all the sins of Corinth, That was the the sin that the city was most known for. To Corinthicize meant to sleep around across the kingdom, which was not exactly Prudeville, as I said before, itself. And we we can just walk these terms. What does he say? He says, neither the sexually immoral. That is the word pornea, from which we get the word pornography. It is a junk drawer word. For all kinds of sexual sin, you can put adultery in there, you can put homosexuality in there, you can put fornication in there, you can put pornography in there, you can put pedophilia in there, you can put it all in there. It's a junk drawer word for all manner of sexual sin. Then he dials in and he says adultery. Probably gives that extra attention because, you know, it was very common practice, uh, very, 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 very uh, highly patriarchal word, there's biblical biblical patriarchy, and then there's sinful patriarchy. There was sinful patriarchy in which a man could just get rid of his wife when he got older and he wanted a younger wife. They say, no, 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 that's wrong. That's adultery, no. Same thing happens today in different ways, of course, in our culture. But this is now where things get, I think, a bit interesting. And I don't want to do this, but I feel like I need to do this, so I'm going to do it. Some people, um, there, there are false teachers who are sowing confusion within the body of Christ about matters of sexuality. We have had people who've been confused about this matter, who've been part of our church in times past. And as much as I don't want to dive into this, I just want to do it quickly because I need to equip the family of God to think biblically about the things of God. And here it is. In recent years, there have been False teachers, because that's what they are, asserting 
that the Bible does not unilaterally forbid or condemn all homosexuality. That while the Bible would, would definitely condemn homosexual prostitution, homosexual pedophilia, as it does with all kinds of prostitution, as it does with all kinds of pedophilia, the Bible doesn't actually condemn uh, monogamous, one-on-one, um, -on -one, covenantal, they'll say, same-sex relationships. And they will say what, what really, we've, we've unpacked the Greek, and we actually found out what these terms really have meant, and the church has just misunderstood it for 2,000 years, which to me seems at least mildly arrogant, okay? But let's dive into this expression right here. Nor men who practice homosexuality. It's actually two Greek words uh, connected by the conjunction translated here, nor hute. The first word is the word malakoi. Now the word malakoi, translated men here, people say and I'm trying to keep this as generic as possible, okay, to the soft or the passive partner in a homosexual pederastic relationship. They would say, basically, that it was a male forced into that kind of, a young male forced into that kind of relationship. Um, a call boy, if you will. Now, the problem with that false interpretation is there's actually a word for that. And it's the word malakos in ancient secular literature, Greek literature, but the word here is malakoi. And that simply means the soft or more effeminate partner in a same-sex relationship. And that is one direction God clearly forbids homosexuality. And by the way, and I think people have, I think this is a, a fair observation, that in same-sex relationships, they're typically, whether it's among females or males, there's typically one who is the more effeminate one, right? The softer one. And that's just such a testimony of how much God has laced into the human relationship and the human sexual relationship, the male-female thing by his divine design, that even in aberrant or deviant human relationships, one sort of takes the male position and the other one takes the female. But the word malakoi refers to the soft or effeminate person in that relationship. And that's why the King James actually uses the word effeminate itself, which can be confusing. Now, how about the other part of the relationship? Well, that's the next word, arsenkitoi, or translated here, very simply, men who practice homosexuality. Now, here's how people, false teachers, again, try and twist the scripture. They will say, oh, no, 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 hold on, slow down, slow your horses. That's actually a technical term. Technical term for a homosexual prostitute. That's what it's really referring to. So he's, again, just condemning prostitution. Well, I think in some ancient secular Greek literature, it can refer to a prostitute, but the word simply is <laughs> Two words joined together, men and intercourse. In other words, men who have intercourse with men. It's the same word used in 1 Timothy 1.10, the same word used in Romans 1. It clearly is condemning same-sex sexual relations. 
Now, I could go on and on and on, but I'm just trying to give you enough so that when you hear somebody named Matthew Vines or somebody else preach a sermon or write a book, you'll say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, this is not true. The Bible clearly says homosexuality is wrong. Now, if you're here and you're saying, doggone it, that's right, and you're sleeping around heterosexually, you're under the same condemnation of God. So, you know, you don't, you don't get a pass because your sexual sin is of the heterosexual variant and not the homosexual variant. Let's be clear on that, right? Because sometimes people can say, oh, that's so twisted, et cetera, et cetera, and yet they're living in sin. That's twisted as well. Now, a word to those who may struggle with same-sex attraction. I've had friends along the way who've had, who have struggled with that. I want to say, number one, you're deeply loved, whoever that might be. I say, number two, we all have struggles in various areas, including sexual areas. And three, some of these struggles we will have to crucify until the day that we're glorified. And I, I love this quote by Paul Barnett when he says um, this. He says, uh, it must be emphasized, Paul is speaking about homosexual acts for which those involved can and must take responsibility, not homosexual inclination, which may be due to upbringing or other circumstances. So really the question is, for any of us with any of our sinful desires, is this. What do we do with those desires, right? And if you're seeking to say no to them, to crucify them, praise God, is because you're in Christ. But the bottom line is, the second sub-point is don't live like the world because, one, you'll look like the world. And number two, you'll be lost like the world. He follows that strong warning, though, with an even stronger encouragement. Because the last reason he's saying don't live like the world is because you're no longer of the world. Look at verse 11. What does he say? And such were some of you. Let me get technical. That's an aorist tense in the Greek. It's a definitive done deal in the past. It went down. You were that. And I just love that. He takes us back to the ultimate burden of the book, which is don't forget the gospel, right? Don't forget what God has done for you in Christ. See, after telling them the worst, if you persist in that in unrepentant fashion, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. After telling them the worst, he assumes the best. Doesn't he? He says, you might have messed up. And we've all messed up, right? But that's not you anymore. That is not who you are anymore. And then he comes at him with this trifecta collage of grace. Three more aorist past tense verbs. But you were washed. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were scrubbed clean by his blood of all your filth. You were justified, he said. You were sanctified, means set apart. You are a saint. You've been set apart as a holy one, devoted to God. Now live that way. And then he says, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, you were declared righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And, and family, what, this is what we've got to do the whole way home all the way to the holy barn, all the way to glory. We've got to remind ourselves of this. We've got to encourage each other with this. 
We got to preach it. We got to pray it. We got to sing it. We got to live it. We got to believe it and repeat, 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 repeat all the way to home. Because we so easily forget who we are now. And we go back to the way we once were. And Paul says, that's not you anymore. So don't live like the world because you're not of the world. He's assuming the best. And that's where we ought to start when we exhort people who are caught up in sin, right? Now, I'm going to fast forward this next part. Don't live like the world, big idea one, link to number two. Instead, live godly in your body. And I'm using that expression because Paul, some eight times in verses 12 through 20, addresses specifically our body. He states our body. Now, in Corinth, there was a lot of crazy worldviews, just like there is here today. One of them was called Epicureanism. Epicureanism. And Epicureanism um, locked onto a false dichotomy that said... um, Your body is only temporary, and only your spirit is eternal. And therefore, they create this mentality out there that because your body is only temporary and your spirit's the eternal part of you, well, it doesn't really matter what you do with your body because you ain't taking it with you anyway. That was the mentality. And Besides, that's not even really you. So whatever your body does isn't really you, so do whatever you want. That was Epicureanism. And that was represented, these deviant viewpoints about the body, represented by kind of two mottos expressed in this text. Two contemporary, or two models in Corinth that would kind of express the Epicurean worldview. Did you see when Pastor Charles read the text, a couple of phrases that were in quotes? Like verse 12, you see this, this, this verse in quotes, or this phrase, all things are lawful for me. It's in quotes because Paul is quoting a, a, an expression that would bounce around Corinth. And basically, what the mentality behind this motto, all things are lawful for me, was the mindset I'm free to do whatever I want. All things are lawful. And then you had this other model circulating, found in verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. So not only I'm free to do whatever I want, my body, was the mentality represented by this motto, is for my pleasure. Now, are there elements of truth in these models? Sure, there, there's a freedom you have in Christ, Right? And your body is for your enjoyment and to enjoy the world that God in his grace and mercy created for us to enjoy as we enjoy him. But Paul takes up these mottos and says even things that are truly lawful are not always helpful. Now, because he truly, the things up above in this passage, they ain't lawful. He already talked about that, right? All things are lawful for me. He says, okay, fine, but not all things are helpful And all things are lawful for me, but I will not be, what? Dominated by anything. So even, Christian, the things that are patently lawful for you may not be helpful. And we got to say no to them. You don't want to become dominated by anything. That's what he's saying. And he takes up the other quote, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Basically, what he is saying right there is this. God is Lord. 
Not your food and not your stomach, though some of you are living like stuff like that is your Lord. Now, I would say today there are some people who claim the name of Christ to arrive at the same place. My body, do what I want. I have freedom to do whatever I want. They, they don't arrive at it from Epicureanism, perhaps, but they do arrive at that through what I would call cheap grace, which says I can get salvation and just worry about that when I die, but it really doesn't affect the way I live. I mean, I know this might not be the best thing, but God's a forgiving God, right? And so they don't take seriously the holiness of God and the nature of the new birth. And so it, it's prominent today. Now, Paul zeroes in on the preeminent sin of sexual immorality at Corinth when he says in the latter part of verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Yes, yes, there's freedom, freedom in Christ. And yes, your body is for enjoyment, taste and touch and all the rest. But all of that is not to be used for sin, but for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord, and the Lord is to be the Lord of your body. So reason number one to live godly in your body is because your body is for the Lord. That's what he says. No compartments. No compartmentalized Christianity. You ever notice in Romans 12, he doesn't say that we're to present our, our spirits as a living sacrifice. He says, be transformed your mind, by, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, prove what is good and right and acceptable. And he, goes, and he talks about presenting your whole bodies, right, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Why? Because your body is for the Lord. This is number two, verse 14. He says this, and God raised the Lord, will also raise us up by his power. Reason number two, you ought to live godly in your body is because your body is going to be raised. This is not sm some small thing. I don't think we think about resurrection nearly enough. Paul makes sure they, they don't overlook it. Do you know the longest chapter in this, in this book of 1 Corinthians is devoted to the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to do a little miniature Easter series, five sermons, as I currently have it laid out, from 1 Corinthians 15, packed with resurrection truth. Sometimes we, and I've done this, maybe you have too, as Christians use less than Christian expressions like this. You ever heard, well, you know, the body, that's just a shell, right? We've used that, right? Now, the reality is your body is going to go into the ground, and it is going to be decomposed. But doggone it, it's going to be recomposed at the day of resurrection when the trumpet sounds, and our bodies will join our spirits to be ever be with the Lord. And it's going to be to be with the Lord so we can worship him, so we can fellowship with each other, so we can enjoy and serve and all the rest. In other words, we ain't living in heaven in disembodied spirits forever. Living in bodies. Don't you ought to think we ought to live that way then now, is his logic. Your body matters. Your body counts. It's going to be raised. Number three, live godly in your body because your body is joined to Christ. Do you not know, verse 15, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, a lot, a lot in those verses. Let me just reduce it to this. How can 
We take, here's his logic, take our bodies that are, that are glued to Jesus and glue them to someone else in an act of sexual immorality. Paul uses the strongest language. He says, never, let not be said. Why is he making such a big deal about that? Because it's not just our spirits that are joined to Christ, it is our bodies as well. And while there are obvious differences in this analogy, it is an analogy, and Paul is making the point that us sleeping around is just as offensive to the human partner that we're sleeping around on. You're violating a sacred union, and here in the most sacred union of all, your union with Christ. So live godly in your body. Number four, live godly in your body. Now he talks about us. He's doing some, some soul care, some pastoral care. He says, because your body can be sinned against by you. Look what he says, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is what? Outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against who? His own body. And I would add the bodies of others involved as well, of course. But he's making the point, is he not, that there's something particularly damaging, self-destructive about sexual sin. So what is it then, we ought to ask, that is particularly self-damaging and self-destructive about sin of a sexual variety? And I think the answer quite simply would be this. Your body is, our bodies are more than flesh, right? And bones and sinews and tendons and organs and all the rest. No. When he's talking about our body, our bodies, what else composes our body? Well, there's a mind that remembers things, right? Which leads to our memory. There's a conscience, right? There's emotions and experiences that, that are cataloged, right? And that can traumatize us and put scars into us and all the rest. Lewis Smead's Christian ethicist and theologian said this, quote, this is such a great quote. I used it when I preached through this chapter in two messages. I want to use it again. He says, there is more to sex than meets the eye or excites the genitals. There's no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people can be about it. No one can take sex out at night and put it away until he or she wants to play with it again. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his soul parked outside. Therefore, the demand for abstinence is not a killjoy rule plastered on the abundant life by anti-sexual Christians. It's simply respect for reality as we know it. So he says, flee from sexual immorality. And the reality is, God cleanses us. We, we looked at that, boom, at faith in Christ. But candidly, in, in all, walk, all areas of sin, there are some scars you have that only glorification will finally do away with. It is the nature of the beast. Number five, live godly in your body because your body is the very dwelling place of God. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? See, in the Old Testament, the sacred place where God kind of, you know, was, manifested his presence, was the Holy of Holies. Do you know where the Holy of Holies is now? 
It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. It's right there. It's right here. It's right there. God dwells literally, not even figuratively, literally by his spirit inside his people individually and cohesively and collectively. The Corinthians climbed up the temple Aphrodite to worship sex with a god. But because of Calvary, we now worship the god of sex through doing it his way. Intimacy in marriage, celibacy outside of it. We're going to dive into that next week in 1 Corinthians 7. And finally, he says, live godly in your body because your body was redeemed at infinite cost. Massive cost. You could not over-exaggerate this. Latter part of verse 19. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. I want to end with a very, very unlikely love story. His name, I prayed about him in the beginning, Hosea. God tells Hosea to go marry a woman. Oh, boy, how would I put this? Um, spotty, to put it mildly, right? To be gracious. This is a man, this is a woman who slept around promiscuously, profusely, illegitimate hookup after illegitimate hookup, man after man, encounter after encounter. And, you know, what that life does, it just, it ultimately spirals people down. That's what it did for her. And things get so bad for her, she is now standing up before a room of gawky men. Not little more than a piece of meat, nothing more than a piece of meat. Sizing her up, seeing who wants to buy her, scrutinizing her, and all the rest. The bidding begins. Auctioneer, five shekels. And in the sea of faces that just want to use and abuse her, she hears a familiar voice. Five shekels. That's Hosea. A man on the other side of the room, five shekels. I'll take her. And then the auctioneer again says, six shekels. That familiar voice, six shekels. And then somebody else in the room, six shekels for that piece of meat. And on and on and on it goes. Finally, it's at 15 shekels. Auctioneer says, 15 shekels. Men in the crowd remember, she ain't worth 15 shekels. Look at her and where she's been. And that familiar voice says, 15 shekels. Auctioneer, go on once. Going twice, boom, sold. And this man who truly loved her, who she spurned again and again and again, redeems her. And he doesn't do it to punish her. He does it to rescue her because he really does love her. And that's what God did for us. We're the one up on that block, right? Looking for love in all the wrong places, whether we slept around, well, literally, we all slept around on the Lord figuratively.
And yet, he sent his son. That's why I said massive cost, infinite cost. The Lamb of God to take away our sins. And that ought to be the ultimate motivation to live godly in our bodies because our bodies were bought with a price, the price of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a lot to think about today, isn't it? That's a heavy message, right? But it's also a hopeful message because wherever you've gone, wherever you've gone, the blood of Jesus Christ is a whole lot more powerful than your sin. And you may have to get some counseling for sins you've done because the trauma is still there and the scars are still there. Something done against you horrifically in a fallen world or something done by you or some combination thereof. But I guarantee you this. Jesus Christ, this man receives sinners. He forgives. And he gives you the spirit and he gives you the body of Christ and he gives you pastors and counselors and all the rest so that you can walk in the way of Jesus. So glorify God in your body. Don't live like the world, family, because you look like the world when we do that. And you might prove ultimately to be lost with the world. But you're no longer of the world. You're washed, sanctified, justified. So live godly in your body. Don't be a fake. Don't be a fraud. Don't be a scam. ESPN maybe can get catfished, but you cannot catfish the living God. So live godly in your body. Verse 20, so glorify God in your body. Father, thank you for your word, how it speaks to us so freshly from two millennia ago, Lord. Um, I pray that this message would rescue anybody on the verge of going against your will, either sexually or otherwise. Um, that you'd rescue them, Lord, that you would arrest their attention, Lord. In your mercy, they're hearing this out of your love for them. And Lord, for those who have, Lord, I know you have rescued me from a whole lot. Um, I thank you that Jesus Christ stepped on that auctioneer's block on the cross in my place. And thank you that he redeems us no matter what we've done as we turn to him in faith and repentance. And Lord, if there's anybody who's, who's just believing a lot, I've done too much, I've gone too far, and all the rest, Lord, would they hear the whisper of the evil one behind it and then hear in a louder voice, I love you, and I've loved you with an everlasting love. Now come to me, come to me, and be cleansed, be forgiven, be made whole. Lord, would you use this message, and would we not only chew on this message, would, would this message, this text chew on us? This week, and even as we come together for midweek gathering to dial in this truth on our hearts. I pray as we sing, we would remember those words, such were some of you, but that's no longer who you are. Can we sing this, Father, can we sing this with your help, this truth back into our bodies and minds and spirits and memories and emotions and all that, that we belong to the living God. So, Lord, work as you've worked during this sermon, work during this song for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.